Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Dr. Norman Horn, and today I am joined by my good friend, Dick Clark, to talk about Chapter 2 of Faith Seeking Freedom, The Libertarian Basics. That is the name of the chapter, and what we are doing in this podcast series is giving you an idea of what you'll find in the chapter, overviewing the ideas, and just giving you this high-level overview of what it's all about so that hopefully you'll take a look at the book get a copy, and share it with your friends. So first off, let's welcome Dick Clark. How are you doing, Dick? I'm doing delightful, Norman. How are you, sir? Oh, I am awesome and ready to rock and roll with you tonight, sir. You know, it, we have known each other a long time. Uh, in fact, ironically enough, I think we've known each other longer than Doug and I have been hanging out and causing trouble online. At this point, it's been about, what, 15 years now. So let's get a little background on you for those who may not know as much about you, but you and I have been around quite a bit together. So tell us a little bit about your journey in libertarianism and just give people a kind of that little bit of intro. Well, I was always the kid who wanted to ask why one extra time in you know, the class in high school where they're explaining the legal system. Like I actually took a practical law class and three of us out of that uh, elective class all ended up being radical libertarians. And <laughs> I think we just sort of talked ourselves into it. But I really became a, a more principled libertarian uh, when I encountered Bob Murphy in Auburn when he was a summer fellow at the Mises Institute. And he really just uh, sold me on this idea that, of course, as somebody who wants to thrive as a human being, peace is good. But especially as a Christian, I ought to more seriously consider, you know, if the state is compatible with the Christian doctrine for what righteous conduct is, what righteous living is. And I am a Christian believer, and I take that very seriously. And, you know, as the phrase that used to be popular goes, you know, I'm radically saved, right? And uh, yep. and so don't want to retain things just because it's the way that people have, have been doing it for a long time or the habit I fell into. And so I just seriously looked at what Bob was telling me, and and he kind of sold me on the on the whole deal and so then I just had the wonderful opportunity to then work at the Mises Institute when, as I was completing my undergrad degree. And then for a couple of years after that, I got to run the library at the Mises, uh, Mises Institute. I got to edit some old Murray Rothbard typewritten essays that hadn't been published before for first publication and just get to sort of frolic in the garden of ideas there and attend <laughs> every seminar they had and got to meet cool people like Norman Horn. And so... I did leave the Mises Institute to go and pursue my now wife, uh, Justina, <laughs> and also to go to law school, which I did up in Boston. And so while I was up there, I, I kept ringing the libertarian bell and uh, was still trying to figure out ways to professionally uh, be involved in promoting liberty and not just doing it as a annoying way to talk to people over the lunch hour, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, right. Uh, you know, I was the head of the Federal Society there 
But what really kind of blew some people's minds is I was also the the vice president of the ACLU chapter. And I joked around with people that I'll use the Constitution to stop any kind of state program. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and so that uh, led to where I am now, which is still in a, in a career in policy. I work in the Nebraska legislature now as an attorney to one of the committees of the Nebraska legislature. And then I also uh, have a private law practice that mostly deals with people's civil rights as they relate to firearms. And that might be restoring somebody's rights so they can legally own a gun, defending them after they've engaged in a use of force incident, or even things like helping dealers and manufacturers stay compliant. And so, you know, I try to turn hobbies into income streams. And I I heard a wonderful lecture at the Mises Institute one time by a a rabbi who, who talked about the righteousness of making money. And now this is not a profession of why you should love money, but just the idea that if you serve others, then money follows that, right? If you're, if you're successful yeah. at being a serial helper of other people. You know, and that's, it's funny you'd mentioned that because if I recall right, that would have been Rabbi Daniel Lappin. That's right. That's and right. I was there for that lecture too. <laughs> Wasn't um, that great? That, it was, oh man. I, grandfather I, the peddler. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it, he was a really interesting fella to listen to off the top, but that, I mean, we'll get real far askance here, but I do think it's, it's kind of cool that a lot of, you know, our early interactions, you and I were via LVMI. We first met each other at Mises university in 2006. And so it has been about 15 years now. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really cool to, you know, just kind of get to watch each other's families develop over the last 15 years and to see you go from being, you know, who you were as part of LVMI to, you know, now <laughs> seeing you get involved with Justina and now you have three kids and it's, oh, it's goodness gracious. Like, and now I have three kids too. So it's, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Well, before long though, we do have to get into this book, but I, I think it's cool just to, you know, review friendships for people and just to kind of tell those stories because libertarianism does bring people together, but it also is something that, you know, is still for all intents and purposes, it's, a philosophy that still has a lot of unknowns to, or is still unknown to many people. And in fact, 15 years ago, when I started my own journey in this realm, and well, it's been no longer than that, but I remember very distinctly even being in the parking lot of our church and one of my friends there, you know, at church saying, so I heard you're a libertarian. Does that mean you vote for the green party? <laughs> and he was serious. And it was like, you know, in retrospect, you want to use that Luke Skywalker quote, you know, every word you just said was wrong uh, <laughs> sort of thing. But I guess it kind of raises the question, which is if we are starting from zero somewhere with regards to teaching somebody about libertarianism, where do we start, Dick? What's the way do we, do, we should do that? Well, libertarians love peace, right? They love peace in their interactions with other people. Robinson Crusoe doesn't have to worry about being peaceful, right? Because peaceful really just refers to a social condition. But when we're around other people, we have the choice to either engage in violence and to not cooperate, but to be at odds with other people, or we have the choice to collaborate with other people. And in fact, I, I of course believe that's the way we ought to go because it's to our mutual betterment. And we can talk about the nerdy economic reasons for why that's true with the specialization and division of labor and how that makes everybody more productive when they focus on the thing they're good at. But, you know, I became a libertarian first on moral grounds. And then as Rothbard liked to 
described it was a happy coincidence that the most just system also leads to the greatest human prosperity, right? The fact is that right. not only does being a just person who respects the rights of others make you a more righteous person, which ought to be really important to Christians, right? But it also happens to promote the best outcomes for things like human well-being in, in a material sense, right? Like people not starving at such a great rate, people having a, a longer lifespan with more comfort and fewer ailments and, you know, better quality of life. And those are things that we can better achieve when we don't reach for a gun first, which is kind of a funny thing to say, because I'm the, I'm the lawyer who helps people get guns. <laughs> I'm going to always try to talk people out of using them unless it's absolutely necessary, right? Right. And so that's what libertarians are, is people who don't immediately start trying to compel others to get their way, but try to find a way to collaborate with others in a way that the other person voluntarily participates in. So we start with this idea that we want to avoid conflict mm-hmm. on some level that we value certain things such as cooperation, peace, even you know being prosperous in the long run. Yeah. And one way we could even symbolize that is just we value long-term thinking, not short-term thinking as the means of getting there. And so how do we codify that though into something that maybe summarizes this view in a, the fewest number of words possible, shall we say? Well... We have a really short acronym that we use commonly in libertarian speak. And of course, that's the the NAP, right? The non-aggression principle. And it's just the crux of libertarian principle presented in simple form that I should abstain from aggression against others, from violating the rights of others. And of course, as Christians, there's a wonderful way to state this in the form of the of the golden rule right? Doing to others what I would have them do to me. And there's a wonderful reciprocity built in there and an idea that there's an equal right in each human being to be treated uh, in a just manner and that that's what I crave and that's what I ought to act upon with respect to others, right? Is, Is seeking justice towards others in my actions because I desire justice for myself, right? And and it's not, by the way, what kings do, right? Kings say, do what I say, or else my guys will, you know, eventually chop your head off after we get through enough bureaucratic process, right? And so, uh, <laughs> well, we just call that due process now. Yeah, right. Due process. Yeah. Do as I say, or else I'll yeah. process you. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. so, <laughs> uh, you know, but it, there's not the reciprocity there. And, and it's a really radical idea and one that, thankfully, uh, this part of, of the libertarian message should sound pretty familiar to modern listeners, the idea that people ought to be seen as having equal rights. But of course, when we're talking in our libertarian speak, when we refer to to equal rights, we're really talking about what some people call negative rights, right? Or negative liberty, which is the absence of coercion. We're not saying that everybody has a right to, you know, an equal amount of the atoms on the earth or whatever, right? That's that's not the kind of equality we're talking about. And that's important to point out too, because that wouldn't be just either. And of course, the lesson that we get an annual chance to remind people of, which happened at Plymouth Plantation with this sort of experiment in uh, early socialism with common property and people having this sort of communal farming system, 
you know, it resulted in tragedy, right? And, and it disincentivized hard work and it caused resentment and it led to human suffering. And it wasn't because there were a bunch of people who were trying to, to hurt others, right? It was just that institution. A natural consequence and right. incentives involved. Yeah, well, that's right. And institutions set up incentives for people and people adjust their behavior with respect to what the incentives you know, guide them to do. Uh, and it shouldn't come as any surprise in that context that you get a bad result. And of course, in our technocratic 21st century society that we live in, we shouldn't be surprised when we see how the incentives in government bureaucracy cause these perverse consequences where, you know, for example, you know, what's in the news right now, vaccines being poorly distributed and, you know, them going bad and they have to do this mass vaccination event because somebody turned the refrigerator off and it's just, you know, the news is just full of all these examples of bumbling government. It's not that people are trying to screw it up. It's just that the institutions set them up for failure. Uh, and that, yeah. that's such an important lesson that I think it's almost like the libertarian 201 level class. You know, like 101 yep. is like aggression is bad and, you know, fight for my rights and all stuff. But 201 is even people that are trying to do the right thing get seduced into doing the wrong thing by these state institutions. And in the Christian verbiage, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner, right? It's not that everybody who's involved in the, in the revenue bureaucracy or everybody that's involved at the police department or everybody that's involved at the FDA are, are out to do evil, right? Most of them, that couldn't be further from the truth. And until we learn that lesson and we, and we understand the importance of the institutions and the importance of the, of the culture, then it's, we're just swinging and missing, right? And we're blaming the wrong cause, and by the way, that leads to hate and resentment against other people, which probably we'd like to avoid, right? Yeah, it's remarkable to consider that when you institutionalize aggression, this leads to a vicious cycle of resentment that builds up amongst the population. And it spills over from time to time. We see it now in so many different ways with regards to the, the way in which people feel that they have a right to someone else's well-being, somebody else's resources, somebody else's somebody else's stuff in basics, right? But on the other side, if you deinstitutionalize aggression and your society is built on the principle that voluntary action and cooperation is the way in which we are to behave and become prosperous, that's a virtuous cycle. And yeah, there will be aberrations that hurt other people, people will act sinfully, people will act unjustly to one another. But on the whole, what happens over time is that societies that are built on these sorts of principles will succeed. And in as much as they continue to do that, even in the face of institutionalized aggression, they will succeed. Going back to the vaccine thing again for a second, it's amazing to consider that every step of the way throughout this pandemic, that when government has decided, and we'll, and we'll use the, the American government as our case in point here, every time Trump state or now Biden state got involved, it got whopper John. Whether it was the testing or whether it was, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? I guess we need to just lock down stuff. Or in the case of, you know, Operation Warp Speed and the, the development of vaccines, you know, what did they do? They, the more that they eliminated the red tape, the faster they were able to produce it. 
And it's amazing that we have like five viable vaccines now, thanks entirely in part to free market development. Right. But it's now the logistical problem because government's trying to manage it that everything's going whopper job again. Well, and, you know, I'm a guy from South Louisiana and I wasn't there when Katrina hit, but my church in Slidell, Louisiana was one of the last big buildings before you crossed the bridge to go across Lake Pontchartrain to New Orleans. And so there were all these relief shipments going through. And in many cases, the National Guard and the other government entities were turning away relief supplies because they just didn't know what to do with them. And it had to fall to private actors, volunteers. And in this case, it was a, you know, like a, a league of churches that had come together in a disaster relief organization that had to facilitate that. And they did a much better job than the government was doing on, you know, those early days. And I, I would dare say even throughout the catastrophe, but, it, you know, voluntary cooperation is amazing in how dynamic it is. And you just gave an example of just this, you know, this moonshot world project where people put their talents to work and created this vaccine on this amazing accelerated timeline that we've probably never seen before, right? And it is, I I don't mean to, you know, kind of take over the conversation with justice, but just um, the sheer immensity and size of what has gone on here and the fact that it is, and I know that people, some people are going to object to this, but let me tell you, like, you know, the amount of free market operation that's gone into this is remarkable. It's the only reason this is happening at all. Like, this is not something that could that the government could have conceived upon and done it. But anyway, I'm sorry. Now I'm getting off askance. But. Well, no, it's a, you can't point a gun at a test tube and make the yeah, science come out, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> and that's what government would be left to do, right? We have to do science, and there needs to be competition because science, hierarchical science doesn't work the way science is supposed to work, right? You need peers. And in a yeah. hierarchy, you don't have the the sort of peer relationship that you ought to have to be advancing the, the state of the art. For sure, man. I guess this is just the case in point, that there is, a, is such a stark difference between what happens when people voluntarily work together to accomplish goals versus when you try to hierarchically you know, from the top down, manage the whole thing. Hayek makes this point, you know, quite eloquently in his work on knowledge and decisions and so on. It's a tremendous thing to observe like in real time because sometimes it's not intuitively obvious what's going on, but we can definitely see it now. Well, and, you know, the largest collaborative project in human history, Wikipedia, is based on a Hayekian insight that Jimbo Wales derived from the use of knowledge and society, right? And that was an essay given to him by Mark Thornton at the Mises Institute. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, that. and because uh, Jimbo Wales was actually a finance major at Auburn at the time. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, but but again, it's this idea that this non-hierarchical, spontaneous order that comes together from people just, you know, pursuing their own ends, but doing it in a collaborative way. And wouldn't you know it, people are more productive uh, in, in some enterprises when they're not being bossed around. Uh, and so, you know, the other thing that we should note here is as Christians, none of this should come as a surprise to us, right? Because the Bible yeah. is full of instruction about not seeking vengeance, about, you know, not being quick to anger, about paying people what, what we owe them, about not defrauding others, 
about not looking after what my neighbor's got and instead looking after what I've got as far as, you know, not envying my neighbor or coveting his stuff. And it just so happens that the way our living God has instructed us to live leads to the best result. And it's almost like our God loves us, right? And wants to take care of us and wants us to have a good outcome. And this isn't some kind of prosperity gospel, right? That doesn't mean that every Christian is going to have every, you know, a good outcome or every capitalist is going to have a, a good outcome in every respect. Everybody will have 20 million Bitcoin by the end of it. Yeah, well, yeah, no limits to growth. But, uh, but you know, refraining from murder, kidnapping, theft, fraud, assault, you know, these are all the counsel of Scripture, and it makes us better off, not just in the eyes of God in, in the eternal sense, but in the here and now sense, we can be at peace with our neighbors and we can all be more prosperous when we respect these, you know, divine conventions for social interaction. And that doesn't mean that people don't, you know, temporarily occupy positions of social authority because sometimes that is a God-ordained authority in the form of, you know, a, a family member, right? I mean, just the idea of looking up to a respected uncle, you know, to, to settle the score between a couple of 12-year-olds who are bickering over something, right? I mean, that's something that God built in to the family. And that's, that's the good kind of, of hierarchy because yep. it comes from love, right? And it's not that cold, you know, mechanical, you know, grasp of bureaucracy where, you know, Hannah Arendt, famously talked about the banality of evil and the idea that, you know, the atrocities of the Nazis were only possible because of how boring the bureaucracy made it, just how rote <laughs> and just customary and us oh, is what I got to do on Thursdays. And and that's how they got to that was just the, the institutionalization of all of those policies and people's behavior conforming to those institutional incentives. And it's scary because of how boring it can be when you're on the inside of it, right? We look at it from the outside and like, oh, they must all have been crazy, right? And and John Flynn in his wonderful book, As We Go Marching, which was written back in the 40s, was talking about the rise of, of fascism in Italy and in Germany. And he talked about how, well, you know, if if fascism is the invention of just the demented German mind, we have no need to fear of it here, right? And But unfortunately, it was people who really thought they were trying to solve problems. And, and they went to this obscene result. I won't say in good faith, because they should have not engaged in, in evil, not engaged in aggression, but they were seduced by these seemingly reasonable series of, of motives and, and solutions presented to solve these, these problems that they faced in society. Yeah. And again, it just goes back to we, we have to remember that these are not just all psychopaths in government. These are people who just often really fully believe in the policy that they're enforcing. They're just mistaken. <laughs> it is interesting to consider the way that kind of vicious cycle actually works because it kind of goes back to it even within this idea and the banality of evil, where if it's, if it's acceptable to initiate aggression in instance X, well, what if it's instance X plus 0.001? Oh, that, okay, that's not that much worse. So I guess I'll just do that too. And then well, what if I increment that a little more? And then a little more? And then a little more? And you see, that's how the banality of evil turns into this kind of snowball effect. Well, and you do I don't have a specialized form for that other case anyway. So I just have to use the form that's made for case one. I mean, you know, that that's how it happens, right? And it's just yeah, yeah. it's so simple to understand at the micro level. And and of yeah. course, 
both of us are Austro-libertarians, right? Influenced by the Austrian school. And so that methodological individualism that we inherit from the Austrian school, I, I think really helps us analyze these sort of causation problems about how did the evil come out at the end with just these people inputting their seeming, you know, seeming good intentions. Mm-hmm. It's just, it blows people's minds when they, at least it blew my mind when I first recognized this, right? And, it, and it's a wonderful thing because it's, a, it's an optimistic view of the world that all these people aren't my enemies. I just haven't reached them yet. Right. And they're, they're yeah. doing things. And by the way, that is the Christian view, right? I mean, Paul, you know, he was the chief of sinners and he's trying to reach other sinners and, and help them, uh, you know, find uh, Jesus the way he did because it radically changed him. And if we can take that view as libertarians, that first as a libertarian, my job is to be just and it's not the the whole society wide goal. My first goal is to be right with God and to not slander the name of Christ by by identifying with it and engaging in unrighteousness, right? And instead, I need to try to live after Christ's example and love others and serve others. And it just so happens that I can be served by serving others, right? It, it can help me achieve my ends, like I talked about earlier. And I and I try to teach my kids that you know your job one day, it'd be great if it's something that you can really love and have a passion for. But what you have to find out, what's critical is what are your talents and how can they serve other people? How can they be applied to serve a need in somebody else's life? And if you can connect those dots, then you can find a way for the paychecks to come, right? And that's that's it. You have to connect your talents with other people's needs. And if we can live like that, that's a Christian way to live, right? I mean, that looking for ways to serve others as a lifestyle can also be a career, right? It doesn't have to be a monkish ascetic existence, right? And that's the the beauty of markets is that that peaceful cooperation can be so fruitful. I think it's so interesting, you know, just the way in which you and I get to talk about this. And I hope it's clear to all our listeners. Listen to just some of the verbiage that we're using. You know, beauty, harmony, there's an excitement here, service, all of these things, these such positive wordings that should help one to realize just how whole and wholesome the libertarian philosophy is and how it fits alongside a Christian worldview. And this is why we say, you know, libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought as well. And that's what we say here at LCI. And so to kind of close out, I do want to, you know, mention just a couple of other things. You know, first of all, again, what we're talking about here, this is kind of a, call it the extended cut or the commentary on our book that we've written together. Dick was a co-author on this book as well called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And so you can find that at amazon.com. Just search for Faith Seeking Freedom. Look for the yellow cover with the ichthus and a, and a crown on it. And uh, you'll find you'll find that on Amazon just for a couple bucks. You can get that in paperback. You can get it on your Kindle. And if you're interested in ordering a whole lot of copies at once, just go to libertarianchristians.com and contact us there via our contact page, and we can make special arrangements with you. We also have an audiobook incoming, so pay attention to that. It is on the way. But I do want to close out with just a, Dick, do you have anything else you want to kind of leave everybody with before we end our podcast for today? Well, I just want to thank everybody for thinking and caring about justice. And I just want to remind you that our craving for justice is something that God built into us. And we can pervert that and make it about vengeance 
or we can, I think, use it as intended and make it about conforming ourselves to the likeness of Christ. And so that's what I just hope all Christians will strive to do is think about how to be more Christ-like. And I think the, the Prince of Peace says a lot, right? The fact that we ought to be peacemakers, this is the way that we can structure society in a peaceful way. And even if society isn't structured that way, it's the way that I can demonstrate peace to others who need to see it. So That's awesome, Dick. Thank you. And to finally close out, I want to read the quote that is at the beginning of chapter two, The Libertarian Basics. And this is a great quote by St. Cyprian, circa around 250 AD. He says, Consider the roads blocked up by robbers, the seas beset with pirates, wars scattered all over the earth with the bloody horror of camps. The whole world is wet with mutual blood and murder, which in the case of an individual is admitted to be a crime. It is called a virtue when it is committed wholesale. Impunity is claimed for the wicked deeds, not on the plea that they are guiltless, but because the cruelty is perpetrated on a grand scale. And what he's saying, guys, is that the things that we obviously see as criminal and murderous and awful that are committed at an individual scale, when the state gets involved and it does it and everybody lauds it as being virtuous, that's a mistake. And so during our next chapter and our next podcast, What is Government? You'll learn a whole lot more about that as well. But it all starts here with understanding the basics of libertarianism. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.